Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They're the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. Today, I will be speaking with urban historian Elihu Rubin. We will delve into the dynamic forces that shape everyday places and the evolving nature of the built environment. Using New Haven and Boston as a canvas, we're going to highlight the interplay between society, economics, and urban change, uncovering what elements contribute to the vitality of cities and the challenges of preserving a sense of place in an ever-evolving, globalized world. But before we start the conversation, I want to tell you a little bit more about my guest. Elihu Rubin is Associate Professor of Urbanism at the Yale School of Architecture, with a secondary appointment in American Studies. He has a PhD in History of Architecture and Urbanism and a Master's of City Planning degree with a focus on transportation from both the University of California at Berkeley. Elihu also holds a BA in Ethics, Politics, and Economics from Yale. He's the author of the award-winning book, Ensuring the City, the Prudential Center, and the Post-War Urban Landscape, and he's the co-founder of the documentary film company, American Beat. At Yale, Rubin has initiated a range of community-based, student-driven research, which include the interactive Crown Street, the New Haven Building Archive, and excavating the armory, and he is also the director of the undergraduate studies for the urban studies major here at Yale. Elihu, Thank you for joining on Cities. It's a pleasure to be talking to you today. Thank you, Carrie. I'm so excited to join you. What a fabulous show and idea. I'm so glad that you're that you're doing this. Thank you. So we're sitting right now in a beautiful seminar room on the seventh floor of the Yale School of Architecture in New Haven. And this city has played an important role in your life, both in your education, now in your teaching, and as a subject of study in your own work. Your documentary film group, American Beat, has produced three films entitled The New Haven Trilogy. Can you tell us about this project and how it came to be? Yeah, thank you, Carrie. I'd love to talk to you about American Beat and the New Haven Trilogy. This began in the late 90s when I was a college student with my very dear friend, Elena Oxman. And we became fascinated with the places all around us and how they were changing. These cultural archetypes in some cases. Our first short film was actually about a trailer park that was being threatened by the expansion of a mall. And we wanted to explore that story itself and the people who live there and who were being threatened, but then also to step back and discuss America's uneasy relationship with mobile homes and trailer parks and why it had the kinds of connotations that it did for some people. We were really interested in what we called and think of this as these American cultural landscapes, really exploring what they are, how they came about, how they changed over time, and why and how we become attached to certain places. What is sense of place? We all, you know, this place is charming. Uh, this place is exciting. This place is sketchy. Uh, whatever that, whatever that sense of place or atmosphere is. But what are the cues? What makes a place a place. And we had a situation in New Haven, which is still ongoing, actually, because it's about Yale's relationship to its surroundings and the role that Yale would play as a real estate developer, not on the campus, but in the commercial environment just outside of campus. Yale was purchasing properties in the Broadway commercial district. Now, this was a really interesting place, a real place, not just a Yale place, uh, a town and gown mixing uh, environment with well-known, 
famous kind of legendary uh, restaurants like the Yankee Doodle or record stores like Cutler's or the old typewriter repair shop, Whitlock's, where Manson Whitlock, um, you know, going on into his, his 80s was still repairing typewriters. Um, for students and faculty and, and other uh, citizens of, of New Haven and Yale. But it was changing. Yale was acquiring the properties. Old businesses were being asked to leave. Their leases weren't being renewed. So we saw this moment of change and wanted to understand how that change was coming about by interviewing the players, including Yale, and getting their take on their view of a retail district that was shabby that could use reinvestment, um, that could be more lively in their opinion, and talking to the proprietors who felt um, a little bit squeezed by this new kind of big player. And so the story about Broadway becomes a story about main streets everywhere that are being threatened by larger forces and how and where we shop. You know, we had analysts like Alex Garvin, who who um, recently passed away, unfortunately, a mentor to, to me over many years, saying, you know, people are shopping at the big box stores. They're going where you can get more products for cheaper prices. And it's totally legitimate in that sense. But if everyone shops at Walmart and everyone shops at Kmart, then who is shopping on Broadway? And Carrie, this is before internet shopping provides a whole nother series of threats for everyday places. Um, and so we created this film. It is a lament on the past to a degree because we were attached to the places that we're leaving. And we found that the neon sign, right? It's a place marker. And when the neon sign comes down, the built environment is impoverished physically, visually but it also stands for a kind of small scale proprietorship that was also being, being threatened. Um, and we showed the film on Broadway in the old cinema on Broadway that was still there. And we got really hooked on the idea that filmmaking, digital storytelling, interviewing people was a, was a, was an effective way to, tell these stories and to intervene even modestly in the discourse around how um, around how places were, were changing. Um, and so the specific story as a way of talking about these broader trends, you know. Mm. Do you think it's a, a, we're inevitably going to lose all of the small retail that you documented there? Is it just an, an inevitable byproduct of our contemporary urbanism? In some ways, retail is really resistant, right? Like the bodegas of New York and Los Angeles and Miami, they're, they're still there. They become central to the sense of place of a lot of places. And there's still the need for um, neighborhood-wide street-level retail. It's, it's, uh, it's still a part of so many daily lives, but it often depends on the urban environment in which it's in, the amount of residential density that's around it to support it. And what we sometimes find is that retail survives as high-end boutique for those who can afford it. The revival of retail is sometimes uh, boutiqueified. Now, not, not that there's anything wrong with it on its face, but it's becoming more of a, of a choice for those who can afford it. And the reality of shopping for many Americans, at least, is, hey, if the price is that much better and you know I'm working to support my family, um, I have to go to Amazon. Um, that's that's and and that's a real concern. And I think that those of us who love cities and love retail, we need to take that seriously. We need to really, really listen to that. And just one more point on that, Carrie, about the survival of retail. You know, in places like New York, there's a phenomenon, recent phenomenon called high rent blight, where the owners jack up the prices on the retail spaces so high that no one can afford to go there except for the Dwayne Reed or the Starbucks, and they're willing to wait it out. You have empty storefronts in areas that you think would be very vital. Um, we need to find ways to encourage and support local small-scale retail. Some cities have experimented with commercial rent control. If, build, if, if businesses are very important to sense of place and you realize it's important to a community, 
what policies can we make to protect those businesses? I think it's really interesting and important to consider. Well, I mean, I feel like there could be an entire show dedicated to the future of retail. Yeah. Um, but uh, to return maybe to your work on with American Beat, you really are a storyteller and you're trying to present both sides of the story, in this case, for Broadway. But you also produced a film entitled Convergence that takes place on the New Haven Green, or in the New Haven Green. And maybe before delving into that film, I was wondering, Elio, if you could tell us a little bit about the history of the New Haven Green and maybe its importance within this city. Absolutely. I don't know how many of our listeners today have been to New Haven and know the New Haven Green. It is a legendary American public space. Um, It is the center of a colonial town plan that was placed on an area of Connecticut that had been lived in and stewarded for centuries by the Quinnipiac, the Pequot, and many others who made it their home. 1638, you have colonists who had really begun their journey in in Boston, laying out their image of the New Jerusalem. And remember, a lot of these early colonial settlements are very theocratic, and the, 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 uh, the business side and the religious side are very intertwined. A perfect nine-square grid, almost like a Renaissance ideal town plan, an image of a community. You know, these these people come from Boston with all the winding roads and everything's a mess. So they wanted the clarity of this image of a community. The grid is huge, relatively speaking, like um, 900 feet long, for example, each, each block. And the center is the green that was held in common by the proprietors of this, of this colony. Now, the city grows up all around it. Yale, by the early 18th century, begins to play a really big role, uh, having land right on the green where old campus is is now. But the green has remained the center of the city. The original nine squares get bisected. It's They're so big, we need to bisect them to make more functional roads and streets and to subdivide uh, the land. But the green is still the center. And if you started at East Rock or at West Rock or at the end of Howard Avenue in the Hill, and you walk to the green. You have to walk to the green to get a sense of its grandeur. If you were just a drop in the middle, be like, okay, it's a big, huge space. But if you walk through the neighborhoods and then you arrive at the green, big open space, these three churches on Temple Street at the center of the green, the public library, the courthouse, the post office, city hall, um, you really get the sense of this amazing place that serves an everyday role And this is sort of what Convergence was about. It serves the everyday role, people playing Frisbee, people sitting on a bench, um, people waiting for the bus. And then there are these moments where it is activated as this immense politicized public space for protests to be seen, to to represent yourself politically in society. And it's a story about how public space functions, the everyday and the epic in the same place. Uh, And Convergence was interesting because Convergence was the product of Neely Bruce, Wesleyan uh, University composer, who created this planned parade of about 60 different musical groups, all converging on the green at the same time. Cacophony, perhaps, beautiful cacophony on the green, itself a metaphor for what makes public space so, so interesting. And so, we were hired to follow Neely and the making of Convergence, which really was amazing. But we said, if we're going to do that, we want to tell the longer story of the New Haven Green as a public space. Sort of our take on, you've got the event, but now let's talk about the, the cultural landscape. Mm. So that that was Convergence. Well, you know, for those who, who haven't been to New Haven, I hope you'll have the opportunity to walk there and see it for yourself. You know, as you describe it, though, I think about, you know, my home city of Miami, mm-hmm. which seems very far away looking out the window <laughs> today. But nevertheless, there is a kind of phenomena now in our city where there is the privatization of public space, which then, you know, calls into question the kind of collective nature of one of the key elements of city building, really. So I I think, again, you know, in your first story, you talk about the kind of the neighborhood and the sense of place and how these kind of small shop owners are critical in that. And in the second piece, you talk about, you know, public space, which of course, 
you know, uh, using New Haven as an example, but again, touching upon a central theme in the development of cities across time. One of the most important themes, totally relevant today, as we think about who provides public spaces, who manages them, and who maintains them. Can we support the public sector and the public realm to support public spaces? Or do we rely on real estate developers to produce public spaces, quasi-public spaces, as part of their broader development? Again, not necessarily bad. I try to fight against the knee-jerk reaction. And my feel is that we can't let developers produce public spaces. That's neoliberal urbanism. That's the withdrawal of the public sector from public. And, and I think there's a concern there. But then we have to let these places be what, what they are. A private real estate developer created Domino Park in Brooklyn and New York. Okay, let's let, and people say, hey, Domino Park either is or is not a vital, democratic, heterogeneous public space. So then what we have to do, Carrie, as you know, we have to do spatial ethnography. We have to go there and interview people and observe it and see how it actually functions. But public space continues to be such an important issue, how it gets provided, who gets to do it. So many examples about that too. Mm. Um, you know, the story of Little Island in New York jumps to mind where the, uh, billionaire media mogul philanthropist Barry Diller decides he wants to help create this really exquisite little island, which is what it's called, a public space just off the west side of, of New York. Now, the critics will say, that's wrong. We can't rely on, on a philanthropist to decide when and where to make a public space. And frankly, I, I agree with that. Um, but now we have to, let's see what, what this island becomes. You'd like to stay optimistic about the potential of these places, but you know, your your audience understands this, paying attention to where the public spaces are, the qualities of these places, who manages them and maintains them, what behaviors are tolerated. Can I say this about public space? One thing I tell my students all the time is we have this idea that public space is nice, pleasant, happy, but it's not. Public space can be tough. Because public space is where we test our tolerance for difference. And people don't want to hear that. What do I want to go to public space for and be challenged? But that's the beauty of, of American public spaces. You come in contact. And even if you, you're not singing Kumbaya or anything like that, but you tolerate difference. It's this kind of um, co-presence that I think is so important. And I think we have to keep that in mind. Public spaces can be tough. And maybe they should be at times because we're confronted, um, we're, we're um, invited to consider the whole of our society. And I think that's important. And I think that's an important point to make, perhaps within the political um, kind of ethos of our day. Yes. Um, so again, I feel like I need to have you back. We're going to have to do like a trilogy with you. Either. Yes, more trilogies. But, but in, uh, I'm curious, are you working on any film projects right now? Yes. You know, from the beginning, um, or especially since grad school, I saw film projects as a way of participating in city planning processes. On the one hand, because it's such an effective way to tell stories and to get people engaged with what's going on. Um, and also because the process of making a film begins a conversation and engages people in the story, even if it's just their memories of the neighborhood and of a place. This semester, um, Maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later, the, the Gough Street Armory in New Haven that I've been involved with. But um, several of my students, they made an amazing five-minute film about as an invitation to the armory, which we're going to continue now and elaborate as we interview more people. But the other film project I'm working on now, also with some students at, at Yale and, and others, is about the, the Dwight neighborhood here in New Haven, which is undergoing a neighborhood planning process it's part of a long-standing relationship that the neighborhood has with Yale and the Urban Design Workshop at Yale. Um, and so shout out to uh, Alan Plattis and Andre Harwell and the people at the Urban Design Workshop, where I'm also a faculty director. And we're making a film about Dwight that begins with the memory and the history of this long-standing process, but becomes a invitation to the future and as we did in the last of the New Haven Trilogy films, working with high school students, our intention is to work with young people in the neighborhood, let them conduct the interviews. 
so that we can pass the baton and share the stories from one generation to the next um, and build the next generation of, of neighborhood leaders. So that's the current project. It's about Dwight, the Dwight neighborhood and filmmaking as part of the planning process. I think it's a I look forward to being able to see it. Yeah. Um, because as you said, it's a very powerful medium. Um, you know, to to bring to light stories that are oftentimes untold and to maybe ignite, you know, activism and interest and a whole host of other um powerful responses. So second only to podcasting. <laughs> I don't know about that. And audio. <laughs> because with audio, you really get to be in the story. And with video, of course, we're we're feeding you a lot of images, but it makes it maybe a little bit little bit easier in in some sense to feed that. And audio is so powerful. You know, I think about audio walks through cities and this this kind yes, of thing. Of it's course. such a great medium. Of course. Well, um, I I maybe we can turn to another medium yeah. that you excel, which is the written word. And I want to talk a little bit about the book, the award-winning book that you authored entitled Ensuring the City. The Prudential Center and the Post-War Urban Landscape. What? Why was it important for you to tell this story? It never fails to amaze me the world we live in with all of these urban highways and parking garages. You know, it's it's always awe-inspiring, shocking, sometimes disturbing to consider the dramatic changes of the post-war. American city, let's say, in, in this case. You know, World War II was devastating for cities in Europe, and they rebuilt. In America, after World War II, we went to war against ourselves. We condemned huge swaths of our cities. Miami is another classic story of this, and, and the Overtown uh, neighborhood, for example, and the highways slashing through. So if you were born into that world, you know, the thing about the built environment is, you know, Carrie, that's so seductive. There it is. It naturalizes itself. But every highway has a story. Every parking garage has a story of what came before. What was sacrificed to produce this new city? How did we build the consensus that this is what we had to do to save American cities? Slash through neighborhoods and build highways, build huge parking garages so that people could park their people from the suburbs could come in and park their cars. I was fascinated with this. I had to figure out how did this happen? And I wanted to find a place, one place where I could look at the whole prism, the whole dimension of things. And the Prudential Center in Boston um, became that for me. Now, I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts. I grew up taking the, the green line, uh, the D train. Any Bostonians out there in the audience? I hope so. Maybe someone from Boston. So the Prudential always fascinated me because it was inextricably linked with the urban extension of the Massachusetts Turnpike. It was already a story of a huge redevelopment project where, in this case, a rail yards, a railroad site, which, of course, the railroad is the technology of the late 19th and early 20th century. The railroad is completely fundamental to city building, um, you know, up until uh, 1920, at least, um, the railroads and the trolleys. So now that's being replaced with automobile uh, facilities. We have the power of urban renewal and how federal and state laws are being rewritten to certify certain actors and corporations uh, as operating in the public interest. In this case, an insurance company, and I got really interested in insurance companies, which already have the self-perception of representing the public interest. I mean, after all, they're, they are social security. Insurance companies want to see themselves as social welfare organizations, and in, in many ways they are. They're also amongst the most financially successful companies in America. And in mid-century America, MetLife and Prudential were two of the three biggest corporations in the country, if not the world. There's such huge conduits of capital. And it turns out that a lot of urban renewal landscapes are being financed either directly, like the Prudential Center in Boston, or indirectly uh, by insurance companies. So someone, if the built environment is a whodunit, how did this come here? We have to figure out who is writing the checks. And the insurance company is the insurance companies are writing a lot of checks in mid-century um, America. And um, so the patrons, the highways, urban renewal, and then the built environments themselves, corporate office towers, new raised pedestrian plazas outside of the street, entirely new street systems, really a total rejection of the traditional city. 
as it had been built. So here was an example of that. A lot of modern ideas, but not being deployed by Walter Gropius, um, who, who actually did propose um, his own proposal with the Architects Collaborative and Pietro Belusky and others for the site, read about it in the book, The Modern Plan That Wasn't Realized, but an everyday architect, corporate architect, Charles Luckman, who worked with originally William Pereira. William Pereira was the artist. He always wore a smock. Charles Luckman was the businessman. He always rolled up his sleeves and wore, wore a tie. So corporate architecture, you know, we love to talk about you know the the gems um, of of buildings, and there are great exemplars, and there are corporate firms that do amazing work. But a lot of the built environment gets produced by big corporate firms that work with clients in a non doctrinaire way. So I was interested in how big ideas about modern urbanism actually played out in very kind of banal places. And because last I'll say about the Prudential Center is. It was always the ugly duckling of Boston. No one thought it was a great building. No one thought this was a great place. In fact, the retail failed. And over time, they completely remade the Prudential Center, um, which is ultimately, by the end of the book, what got me interested again in, okay, we figured out how it got here, but now how has the Prudential Center itself changed over time? And it has. It's changed, it's changed a lot over time. And today, the Prudential Center anchors um, what is a very vital midtown district um, in between the, the Back Bay and the South End. And some will say Prudential's investment in Boston helped set the stage for Boston's post-industrial renaissance as one of America's leading cities. Hmm. Boston really comes out ahead. So I'm going to want to dwell a little bit longer on that story, but we're coming to the halfway point in the uh, conversation. So we're going to take a quick break. But when we return, I will continue my conversation with Elihu Rubin on really the stories and the struggles that shape American cities. Do not miss the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. 
Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Ilya Rubin. And right before the break, we were talking about the making of the Prudential Center and his wonderful award-winning book. So nearly 60 years, I guess, have passed since the making of the Prudential Center in Boston. So what can we learn from that project? And and are we doing anything different today? Thank you for that question. I, I think I think there's a lot that we can learn from the Prudential Center. On the one hand, stepping back we learn that every building and every landscape is a crucible of competing forces. That the building, once it's there, naturalizes its presence in some sense and sort of covers up um, the, the competition of ideas that led to its production, but that buildings and places can be excavated. So in a sense, it's a methodological lesson about the way we look at our surroundings, to look at it, to to be able to ask important questions uh, about it. We learn a lot about what cities in post-war America were willing to do in order to cultivate investment at a time in which they really feared urban leaders, politicians, property owners, feared for the future of their cities. And they were willing to um, uh, uh, anoint insurance companies as urban redevelopment authorities, uh, essentially. They were willing to give big tax breaks and incentives. They were willing to displace existing neighborhoods and people. So it, it reveals a lot about the power dynamics around urban change. And I think that we face the same questions today. Many cities are willing to bend over backwards with incentives for development. And what I would tell a lot of city leaders today is cities are going to be and are the most vital, desirable, attractive, essential places in our larger built environment. And if the developer wants to come here, we we can expect more. You know, we can we don't need to give all of these tax uh, abatements necessarily. We don't need to give all of these um, variances necessarily uh, that we can, um, you know, put the right price on what it takes to be in the city. And and that, you know, with today's development, it makes me think that we can if we if we ask more of them, we can ask more in terms of building affordable housing as opposed to just market rate housing, for example. So I think we learn about the dynamics between local politicians and the patrons of of urban change and how to how to navigate and and negotiate those those forces of of urban change. Um, mm. Yeah, there's there's a lot that we need to keep our eye on in terms of uh, what how we incentivize urban development, and when we do as cities, what are we sacrificing or or giving up, and how do we make sure to make decisions that are that are right and equitable for the people who do live now and have lived for a very long time um, in these places. Mm. Well, I actually, um, maybe we can turn to a a second book that you're currently working on, um, and it's entitled Ghost Towns. 
The Urban History of an American Icon. Elihu, this is an intriguing title. So I have to ask you, what is the focus of the book? Well, the, the book came out in part from the first book in this sense, when mayors and urban leaders in the 1940s and 50s looked at these waning industrial cities, now competing with their own suburbs for um, for residences, for people, and for jobs, and for industry, they said, if we don't do X, if we don't build the urban highway, if we don't build the parking garages, if we don't give big tax breaks to the insurance companies, our city is going to become a ghost town. And they're using the idea of the ghost town to generate fear to make an argument about how a place should change. And my own interests were, were getting more and more towards not just the places and the production of the places themselves, but urban representation, how we talk about places, and that how we talk about places and what we call places, it's not incidental. It's instrumental to thinking about how those places will change. So I thought there's something here about the ghost town because the ghost town is such a powerful place metaphor. We still use it. The book begins and ends in, in some sense with the pandemic ghost towns, right? The great empty, the lockdown, Place de la Concorde is empty, Times Squared is empty. It's a ghost town. Midtown commercial real estate, ghost town. Turns out these places weren't ghost towns. New York wasn't a ghost town. There were still thousands of essential workers still navigating the spaces of the city to, um, to deliver food and goods to those who had the privilege of, of sheltering, sh sheltering and comfort at home. It wasn't a ghost town, but the ghost town was being used as a device, as it often has been, to perceptually evacuate places that aren't actually empty and thus making it available to some kind of urban change. So there's got to be something here with the history of the American ghost town to explore these. And it's so interesting and appealing. Now, I'm a road tripper, as many architectural historians are. I take almost no greater pleasure than driving back and forth across the country. I love small towns. I love main streets. I love courthouse squares. And I got really into ghost towning. Turns out ghost towning in the American West is about a hundred year old touristic tradition of finding and visiting obscure mining cities that have been abandoned. Now, many of you out there, listeners, you must be ghost towners. You visit ghost towns as a tourist activity. And the ghost town is invented in the 1920s as a site for automobile tourists, right? The busted mining cities, once connected by railroad and by the economy and by labor to a broader world is now, now abandoned. Um, and they become these romantic sites to project Western mythology um, and thus a desirable kind of American ruin gazing. But in doing so, these ghost towns, what we forget about is environmental degradation, land dispossession, uh, exploitation. You know, these were tough industrial cities, really, in their prime, maybe never more than 10,000, 15,000 people, but real industrial cities with labor unions and um, stratified uh, racial and ethnic geographies, everything that a larger city would, would have is, is, all, is all there. But as a ghost town, it becomes this magical, gauzy Western landscape. And I was very interested in that cultural transformation of the Western ghost towns as another example of the way ghost towns operate. They, they do a kind of cultural work to recast places as something else to make it available for, for something different. And so the book starts in the quote unquote Wild West with this touristic practice of ghost towning of which I am one, one amongst them. Through the law, then it becomes this very popular place idiom, right? We still use it all the time. And yes, it charts economic withdrawal, right? That's real. It charts frequencies of usage. You know, big snowstorm, the airport was a ghost town, right? We still use it to talk about an atmosphere. It describes a sense of place. So the challenge of this book is to bring that both together. The ghost town as a kind of economic description or critique, the ghost town as an atmospheric description, which is so powerful. And then the ghost town as this instrumental form of urban representation that misleads in some sense. And 
if you're describing a city as a ghost town, well, then who are the ghosts? Who are the people still living there, trying to make a living, um, or serving the the people who are who are um, viewing this place as a kind of spectacle? So, how do we fight against the spectacularization of the ghost town and talk about what it really means? So, I think you can see the challenges here because there's a few different things going on, and I go across time and look at a lot of different places, and so. Yes, Virginia City, Nevada, or Bodie, California, they represent two different kind of interpretive strategies for the Western ghost town, the Western mining town. And those interpretive strategies, either economic or representational, they provide templates for thinking about places mm. going forward. So I got, got really interested in, in that. And you know, just last point about this, Carrie, just to make the point for the audience, you know, if you've been to Bodie, California, it's was a very significant mining city. Today, it is run by the state of California. It is arrested decay. When you go to a Bodhi today, which you should, if you can, it is finding Bodhi as you would have in like 1960 when it was just becoming a kind of abandoned ghost town. It's frozen in time. Virginia City, Nevada, is like a Western honky-tonk tourist town where you also step back in town, not stepping back to the dead city, but stepping back to the boom town. You experience the boom town of the, of the 1870s and 1880s. So you put your cowboy hat on, you go into the saloon, and you drink with the, and it's a different interpretive strategy. It's a different stewardship technique, which I'm really interested in as a preservationist. Um, and they say something different about how our cities today should deal with their own past and incorporate memory in the past in in different in different ways. Um, mm. So the book is these, about some of these things. I hope these two examples I found at the end really interesting because it seems to oscillate between let's say tourism and abandon or 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 a ruin, right? Yes. And but you know it makes me think that with you know in a post pandemic world where maybe we are you know, moving and working in different ways, then the relationship between the kind of dense city centers and these peripheries, you know, may be reestablished in some way. The challenge here, I would imagine, would be that once a place is described a certain way, you know, words matter, images matter. And so they may or may not want to be re-inhabited given that uh, history. So um, I, I look forward to reading the book. Thank you. Absolutely true. I mean, some of the first places called ghost towns, people living there be like, what are you talking about? We're not a ghost town. We're a mining city. Yeah, sure. Things are tough, but you know, we're not a ghost town because that makes them invisible. Sure. And in a sense, the book is about kind of the politics of being seen in cities and being valued. That's another kind of, kind of part of this. I mm. Well, I want to talk about, uh, well, we could talk about many other stories, but but I think in thinking about the trilogy, your life as a filmmaker, your life as a as an author, but you also have a robust role as a faculty member here at the School of Architecture, and you've been engaged in many community-based student-led research projects. I mean, I've heard you talk about this work, the desire to, in a way, step out of the classroom and into the community, you know, and, and engage that community in work that, um, you know, it has meaning um, and is also able to learn from the place that you are embedded. So you've done a number of projects. One of them, I think you alluded to at the beginning of the conversation, which was uh, excavating the arm armory. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if maybe you could tell us a little bit about that story. Absolutely. I mean, just to say from the beginning, I'm one of many scholars really who are, who are really committed to public scholarship, um, especially if you study places and especially if you study the place around you. I mean, I teach at Yale, so I, I look at New Haven. I mean, it would be any, any other way. If I, I don't have to study New Haven, I'm fascinated by New Haven, I love New Haven, but if I were teaching in Miami, I'd be studying Miami. I mean, that's where, where you are and committed to, if you're studying the place to give it back to the people of that place. Why would you be hoarding um, information and ideas and publishing it in an academic journal that only a few people will see when you can publish a newspaper um, about a building type or about the armory and give it to every single person that you see? And then you have a different kind of challenge, not only doing interesting research, but figuring out a way of making it vital and meaningful to people. And one step further, and I think it's very challenging is 
hey, I have questions I'm interested in, but what do my fellow citizens, what do they want to know about? Why should I be asking all of the questions about New Haven? Why not find out what other people want to know and help help work together to co-produce urban knowledge? Um, you know, academia poses as mystical, magical. It's not magical. It's not magical. We all can do it, you know? I tell my students this all the time, Carrie, it's a bit of a detour, but you are talking about analysis. Will you analyze this, analyze, analyze this image? And I say, listen, there's nothing magical about analysis. Analysis and interpretation begins with a rich description. Just tell me what you see. You know, it's the same thing with academic research. You know, it's it's not magical. And we like to think it's magical because, you know, ivory tower, close the door behind you, but it really shouldn't be that way. And for those of us who are committed to seeing Yale, for example, or any place where you're working at a university, um, be um, be equitable and open and play a positive role in the city. It's a complicated relationship. We want to push Yale and anyone else to be, to be their best. Um, they do a lot of great things, and there's even more good things that that can be done. Um, we want to be be doing that. And the Armory is one example where it started several years ago, and I think back in 2017 when the the Gough Street Armory. Now, your audience probably knows something about armories. They're these epic building types that are built for the National Guard or for militias in the National Guard. Armories have a huge drill hall. That's a big open space room, open span room, no obstructions, where you could literally be drilling or even putting your, you know, horses for, uh, for um, you know, different cavalry units. Um but you could also use that open space for public events and civic build and civic events. And many of the armories were built with both in mind, the National Guard and the civic building. And then the, the drill hall is surrounded by a head house, which are rooms and corridors for meetings and offices and that kind of thing. Well, we have a very impressive one in New Haven. It's built in 1930. It's the second biggest in the state. But once the National Guard gets consolidated and leaves and there are no other active users, you have a preservation and stewardship challenge. Now, as often happens in post-industrial spaces, it was an arts group that says, we're gonna do Armory Weekend and we're gonna do an arts show there. Big, huge art show, amazing, ton of fun. And I proposed to work with students to do a project called Excavating the Armory, where we would do a project that was about the building itself, tell its history, its social history, but not just from our perspective, but in an interactive way. There are things that we can research about the history of the armory, but what do you remember about the armory? Turns out people in New Haven remember a lot because it played a really big role. Here's the architecture of the building. A lot of people um, are invited now to just look at it and admire it and see the brickwork, you know, see the Flemish bond, see the arched corbels, see the way in which the fancy brickwork breaks down the mass of the building, see the three arches of the entryway, just see it and appreciate it in that sense. Um, and then to talk about its future, because this was the, gonna be the last event at the armory. The fire marshal almost wouldn't let it happen. The roof was broken, it's leaking, it has asbestos. So we now have a preservation stewardship issue. Almost no public events has ha have happened in the armory since then, except there's an armory community garden. And Carrie, you might have to cut me off because when I start talking about the armory, I. When I start talking about the armory, I can really go, but I become a gardener at the armory community garden. And we begin kind of a grassroots effort to say, we got to pay attention to this building. It's now owned by the city. Um, it came from the state of Connecticut ownership to, to the city. And so we begin myself, my neighbors, my gardeners, my students to start building up um, more interest in the building and being the next chapter in an effort to kind of um, revive it. And it's become now a um a public process we've gotten the attention of the city we've gotten the attention of the state um we will generate together a kind of public vision for the armory um we'll think about what's feasible financially and the mayor of new haven has now recently applied for a grant that, that we help the city write uh, myself and my colleague kate cooney at the school of management and others on the armory community advisory committee so now the city's gone after a grant to bring the armory up to good repair. So we're excited that we got their attention and to say, we have to take care of these buildings. It may not have a user. So the, the stewardship is speculative, but if we don't take care of it now, it becomes a lot more expensive in, in the future. And it's just fun because it's a great building 
And it has so much potential to serve the city as a public resource. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's great power in what you said, and it it certainly resonates with me. Um, you know, the ability to take all of the um, kind of intellectual pursuits that are possible um, in these incredible academic institutions like yeah. Yale, and then finding ways to engage with the general public, bring that knowledge to the community, and also learn from the knowledge that is there so that we can actually provide, you know, kind of real world applications to yes. the knowledge that we are building and growing. So I think that um, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I guess we're coming to the, the end of the episode. And so I, I ask everyone this final question, which is what is your favorite city and why? Oh, I love that question. Such a great question. Such a difficult question. I think because I'm so interested in sense of place and memory um, that my favorite city or one of them would be a place that I just adore as an architectural built artifact, but also have so many formative memories, which would be San Francisco. And I went to grad school at Berkeley and I lived in, in Berkeley for a year, an absolutely beautiful place in the hills. It was just a magical place to, to live. And I'll never forget the eucalyptus trees, the scent of the eucalyptus trees driving driving up Euclid to the top of the Berkeley Hills. Oh, gorgeous. But then I lived in a big garage south of Market with 50 bicycles hanging from the ceiling and my incredible roommates there in this big loft where we made our own walls and built our own windows. And I learned to ride the bicycle again. I said, why did I, why did I ever stop riding a bicycle? This is amazing. And then I moved to Bernal Heights in San Francisco where you could up on a hill and you could kind of see the whole city and I would go on drift. So I'm going to get somehow over there. I don't know how I'm going to just drift. And so the visual density and interest of this city, and this is a long time ago, it's changed, but San Francisco for those sort of personal reasons has to be one of my favorite, favorite cities for, for sure. Well, in hearing you uh, recall it, I think it's it's very consistent with the way that you're describing your work. I mean, it's linked to memory, it's linked to experience, you know, it's even linked to the kind of spatial realities of an interior, right? Yes. Um, which I think it has often not been described in, in responding to this question. So I, for one, um, want to thank you for spending the last almost hour with us today. Your passion for your work is palpable. Um, your generosity as a scholar, as a writer, as a teacher, teacher is, um, I think, you know, Yale is uh, lucky to have you. And I um, I am fortunate to be able to spend the semester uh, crossing paths with you. So thank you again, Ilyu. Thank you, Carrie. It's been such an honor and a treat. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so touched by what you've said. And uh, this this is just terrific. I'm, I'm so happy for the show. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 